everyone, it's Tom here, co-host. I just wanted to say hello at the top of the episode because this podcast has been discovered by many thousands of new listeners in the last couple of weeks. And I wanted to say welcome. We are delighted that you found us. Outrage and Optimism is a weekly podcast to look at the serious existential challenge we are facing from climate change, but also to look at it with a resolutely, determinedly, stubbornly optimistic lens that actually suggests this can be the decisive decade that will be our legacy and we can come through it and create a much better world. Each week we talk to somebody who is deeply involved in this. Last week we had Bernard Looney, the CEO of BP. This week we have Achim Steiner, the head of the UN Development Programme, one of the most senior people in the UN system. And these people can range enormously from business people to musicians to artists, to policy people. So that's part of the joy of this conversation. Climate change affects everybody. And so therefore, this is a conversation that attempts to include everybody. And that includes you. So we're pleased you're here. We hope you stay. Please do listen to the back catalogue. We've got some great conversations and really hope that you enjoy this week's episode. Here we go. Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivik Karnak. And I'm Paul Dickinson. I'm Cristiana Figueres. This week, we talk about the new China commitment to be carbon neutral by 2060. We speak to administrator of the UN Development Programme, Akim Steiner. And we have music from She Drew the Gun. Thanks for being here. So it is a UN General Assembly week and we are all having it personally in our own rooms. It feels very weird that we're not together. Although, honestly, I feel just as busy as I would if I was running around New York as I have been for the last seven years or so at the UN General Assembly week. But it's all happening in my room. Christiana, how are you enjoying your personal Unger week? Yeah, person, <laughs> personal meeting. Um, running from my one microphone to the next and from one screen to the next. But... Tom, yes, it is United Nations General Assembly week, but the reason why you and I are running crazily is because it coincides, as it has done for 10 years now, with climate week. So I think that's why we've all been incredibly busy. Um, and, you know, I'm really interested to see what's going to come out of this because I, I, is everybody just rushing from one Zoom link to the next? Yeah, I mean, and I don't know how many people are dialing into these things, but they, I mean, the Climate Group now run this program that was co-founded by CDP some years ago, of course, and they do a fantastic job. There's been loads of really, really impressive events that they have run and everyone else has run. And I've got to say, you know, I, I've, I've really enjoyed doing everything remotely over the course of the last eight, nine months. I'm glad from an emissions perspective that I didn't get on a plane to go to New York, but I kind of miss this week. I kind of miss the in-person element, partly because inevitably everybody's making big announcements and sometimes stuff goes wrong at the last minute. And normally you sort of sort it out in a bar in Midtown with everybody around a table. But now it's just constant WhatsApp messages and calls. So this is our private world that we're inviting you into that we're facing this week. Um, but anyway... There has been some big announcements out of Climate Week. I mean, apart from anything else, the scaling up of net zero commitments from businesses and cities and regions has been really impressive. And we'll talk about that. But we've got to start with this announcement from Xi Jinping and from China that they will reach net zero by 2060. Now, this is a big deal, right? This is a big step up from where they were before. And the analysis suggests that this commitment in and of itself 
equates to a 0.3% improvement in the temperature trajectory. Wow. So where it was before, my understanding is somewhere around three and a half degrees, just this commitment brings us 0.3 degrees closer to safe, to safety, which we all know is 1.5 degrees, absolute maximum. So, Christiana, it must have been really interesting for you to see this announcement, having been so closely involved with China over so many years. What did you think? Did you draw a direct line between this and the commitments and the ambition they had prior Paris? Were you surprised by it? And do you believe they're going to deliver it? Well, honestly, I was surprised because um, in one of our previous episodes, if you'll remember when we spoke to James Thornton and he was sharing what he was doing in China, I believe it was in that episode that I said, well, the thing with China is that they're waiting for Godot, Godot being the U.S. elections. And before that, we won't really hear from them. Well, I am so delighted to have been wrong totally wrong. Um, And the fact that uh, it is at this General Assembly that President Xi Xi Jinping chose uh, to follow a Trump speech with this announcement is just remarkable. Um, And what I really love about his announcement is a tiny little word that everybody has sort of skipped over, but that looms very large for me, which is the uh, word before. Mm. Because what he said is we, we China, aim to have CO2 emissions peak before 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality before 2060. There is a lot writing on that word before because this previous announcement was that China would would peak emissions by 2030 and now he is definitely letting the world know that they have invested so much and they have understood the technology and the potential of the technology that they can actually be before. He doesn't say how many years earlier, but it's a very interesting peek into uh, what it does when you take a bold ambition and pursue it, somehow the um, the steepness of the hill that you have to climb actually begins to come down. Mm. And uh, so they realize that they can be there before 2030. And the second part of the announcement is just unbelievable. China had never been willing to undertake what we call a long-term target, which as we know in the Paris Agreement is carbon neutrality or zero net by 2050. At least that's the way we interpret the Paris Agreement. Um, And China had never been willing to undertake that as a country. And to now say that they're going to be there before 2060, before 2060. So you could say, well, they should actually be there by 2050 because that's what science demands. Well, but this is a huge step in that direction because A, they are taking a long-term target for the first time in the absence of any leadership of the United States. Hello, no more waiting for Godot. Um, And he didn't say by 2060, he said before 2060. Why? Because their experience with the investments that they are already making. Let's remember that China um, is by far the world leader in the deployment of solar, of wind. Um, There are more electric vehicles being sold in China than the rest of the world combined. And 98 of all of the electric buses that operate, operate in China. So they have really got it. They know what they are doing. They know what they are moving toward. And they know 
that that transformation is one that once you set your mind to it is actually accelerated. Um, so it's, it's just an astonishing, astonishing announcement. And it has, I mean, it's interesting to reflect, you know, given when you and I were at the UN, Christiana, the whole process was so racked by this sense of fairness and historical emissions and who's done what over time. It's less than a year since the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, came out with a net zero commitment for the UK by 2050, right? Which at the Mm -hmm. time felt like leadership. One of the countries most responsible for the creation of the Industrial Revolution and burning coal, etc. And now China is coming with a target less than 10 years later, because it's before 2060, and probably will overachieve it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just totally transformed the politics of climate change. Paul, what do you think? I'm just really happy. I'm so happy. It's just brilliant. You know, it's all doom and gloom. No, 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 no. This is a moment where we have to actually remember how to sort of uh, jump around the room and do a little dance. I just couldn't be... Uh, to hear you say that the world just got like 0.3 degrees cooler uh, makes me super, super happy. And how do we build on it? How do strategies change? How, do, how does the politics and all the work people are doing uh, kind of bank this and use it to sort of pivot to to be more ambitious. Totally. Well, you know, before we go off the cliff of happiness here, oh. which I would tend to do on this podcast. <laughs> Although, Paul, don't let us stop you. I'll, I'll yeah. do my little dance and Christiana can do the kind of the reality <laughs> check thing. <laughs> no, but let's, you know, get a dose here of... Um, of reality, they're, at, at the same time that they're so in the lead on renewables and all of these clean technologies, um, the fact is that um, China's coal infrastructure is huge, right? Yeah. Huge. Um, and its coal consumption fell last year to, I think, around 58% from where it was 10 years ago, which was about 80 But still, it is still consuming more coal than the rest of the world combined. Right. And and China is still investing into the development and the construction and the financing of coal infrastructure um, in many countries through their Belt and Road Initiative. Now, we know from the conversation with James Thornton that there is a good chance that that is also going to change and that the work that he and Client Earth are doing will hopefully green the build, uh, Belt and Road Initiative. But but still, you know, it's it's not like little wings are sprouting from the sides of, of the Chinese leadership. Um, there, there is, you know, there, there, there is evidence of, uh, of both, uh, sides and to the relationship between China and the United States or between China and many other countries in, in the, in the West, it's very difficult, right? To stand up there, get up on our, our table and applaud China totally enthusiastically, because we all know that there are other things that are very difficult for those of us in democratic um, countries to accept, such as what is being done with Hong Kong's autonomy, such as the authoritarian crackdown. You know, there's so many other things. So I would like to um, coin a new term. Oh, I was going to do that, but you first, then I've got one. Um, (laughs) So Tom Friedman, I think, coined a very interesting term a couple of years ago about the relationship with the United States and China and called it they are frenemies because they're both friends and enemies at the same time. Now, in terms of the relationship itself, I'm wondering if once we have 
different occupancy in the White House. Uh, whether we won't have to move, obviously a lot of repair has to be done to the damage uh, with China, but that doesn't mean that everything is going to be solved. That doesn't mean that the U.S. and China will see eye to eye on on everything. They may quickly see eye to eye on climate change, gratefully, but not on many other things. Sure. So here's my term. How do you like this one? Maybe that relationship has to be marked by something called collaboration, which is the combination of collaboration and competition. Collaboration, because they will have to collaborate, certainly on climate change, and I think there is a lot of interest in doing that on both sides under a Biden administration, but they will still be competing on many other things. So, you know, an interesting lesson that there is no black and white in the world, that we have to be able to see differences that are present at the same time, that they're not mutually exclusive, and that we have to find our way through that. Nice. Um, supported, supported by collaboration. How do you like that, guys? Collaboration is so much better than mine, but I'll just give it to you anyway because it's basically the same thing. What was yours? Geopoliticonomics. <laughs> So it's geopolitics. Yeah, okay. So Christianity is better. I, I accept that. I accept it. I accept it. I accept it. I, I mean, Tom, but it's <laughs> Tom Friedman's very famous for for probably quite good reason. I'm is what I'm learning from this conversation. Oh, thanks. So you, you managed to insult everybody. Okay, but the, you know there is something about the economy of the future. On the subject of which was there not a private sector announcement? There was, and we should turn to that. In fact, there were many private sector announcements. But just before we do, I also want to mention that. Gavin Newsom, in the face of these terrible fires that has just happened in California, just came out with a commitment to ban the sale of internal combustion engines by 2035. Now, as we know from two weeks ago when we had the CEO of Uber, Dara Khosrowshahi, on the podcast, they are going sorry, to require Gavin, all of their... But sorry, Gavin, for those who are not California savvy, is the governor of California. I'm sorry. Yes, of course. Yeah. Governor of California. Um, so Uber are going to commit to all their drivers being net zero by 2030. Um, and now California says ban of the internal combustion engine cars by 2035. We're hearing strong reports the UK is now considering a ban in 2030. I mean, this is beginning to feel to me like it's done. Right. And it's because well, if, hold, if there is a okay, well, yeah, my if museum, a ban in my museum is being built. Yeah, your, your museum, museum. museum to the internal combustion engine. So average cost of ownership, average length of ownership of a car is six years. If it's 2030 or even 2035, who is going out buying a new car today? Anyway, so I just wanted to drop that in there because it's very consequential. Now, the other thing which we just wanted to bring up on this podcast, and this is um, very consequential in the in the state of the number of companies and investors and others that have stepped up to implement net zero targets recently. And it's very interesting. There was a report that came out just this week that pointed out that in the last 12 months, commitments to reach net zero have doubled, more than doubled, in fact. A year ago, there were 500 companies committed to net zero by 2050. Now there's more than 1,500. A year ago, there were only 11 states and regions committed to net zero. Now there's 101. A year ago, there was only 100 cities committed to net zero. Now there's 823. The scale of ambition is just going through the roof. And there's so many elements of that that we can dig into. But one I just think we should point out that just happened this week as well is around investors. 
So investors, as we've known for a long time, have been real leaders with the Asset Owners Alliance, people who own capital, pension funds and others, committing to net zero by 2050. But this week, for the first time, a major US bank, Morgan Stanley, also committed to being net zero by 2050 across all of their financial transactions. Paul, what do you think about this? You run the world's largest platform that represents investors on climate change. Is this a big deal? Yeah, no, it's huge, actually. And it, it's wonderful and uh, particularly significant that it's a major, you know, North American global bank. Um, you know, looking into the kind of financing of fossil fuel emissions is, is, is you know, a, a, a different thing or uh, to, to just, you know, holding shares, as it were. But I mean, I, I, I'll highlight Gillian Tett of the FT who talked uh, a while ago about warrior accountants. And actually, you know, the, the world is, is truly changing. Uh, people are choosing these, you know, electric vehicles. People are not suicidal. They're starting to vote with their money for these low carbon products and services. So I think Morgan Stanley is getting ahead of the game by saying measurement's important and we're going to have a, this, this uh, uh, zero target. But what I would also notice is business operate on data. And there are you know, banks perform a critical role. They support entrepreneurs inside and outside of existing companies in a, in a sort of great transformation. And um, I was having interesting discussions with people recently about like the nation, notion of growth and society is going to go in two directions. Everyone's going to kind of like calm down and withdraw from commerce and reduce their emissions that way. Or they're going to get sold really cool products and services that are zero emissions. Mm. So in a sense, you know, business supported by banks is actually vying for its relevance and its future. And I think Morgan Stanley are, are showing real leadership in saying, OK, we'll organize this so we prefer those companies of the future. So within three months, do you think Goldman Sachs, all the other major US banks, I mean, they've got to follow suit now, right? Do you know, uh, Tessa Tennant, who we often discuss, used to say that the financial community uh, have a bird's eye view over the whole economy. They truly can understand trends and they can follow them. They use data better than anybody. I think something like a third of Goldman Sachs employees uh, actually are a, a kind of, you know, working in computing and IT. So, you know, there's tremendous scope probably for parallel different sorts of, of uh uh, of announcements. But I mean, the data does actually support the change. And it's it's the theories of change where I think that the, the business system needs to sort of work better. Is it about marketing to consumers? Is it about discovering new markets? Is it about having alternative products? That's a whole new world. Right. I know that we've totally run out of time, but can I pile on one more piece of good news? Go for um, it. And, and, and this is for Paul, because I know that Paul uh, is completely convinced that accountants rule the world. Ought to rule the world. Ought to. Ought to. Well, maybe they will. Paul, because did you know that uh, the International Accounting Standards Board put out an opinion saying that uh, henceforth companies should not claim to have a profit if that profit hides externalities that have not been put into valuation and into profit and loss, such as climate change risk. Hello. And, uh, and now there is a whole movement to request the large auditors to not sign off on, uh, on any um, accounting reviews that have been done if the climate risk is not also being made transparent because profit cannot be at the cost of externalities such as climate. 
Um, so there you go. That's a huge deal. I mean, it's these sorts of changes that are going to really make such a profound difference in our society, right? And and where we started off this week talking about the UN General Assembly Week and the major impact that China has had in its announcement brings us back to our guest this week, who really has just embodied the best principles of the UN throughout his career. And I could introduce him, but I really think, Christiana, that you should, because you and he are old friends, and Akim Steiner has played an outsized role in everything the UN has done over the last 10 years, as far as I can see, and longer. So, Christiana, why don't you introduce your old friend? Well, yeah, I mean, if there's anyone who embodies the UN and is just always, always there to uh, to shore up the UN and to ensure that the principles and the values with which the UN was uh, was first created are being upheld, it's it's got to be Aachen. Uh, what a fantastic colleague he was while we were at the climate convention. He was heading up uh, the United Nations Environment Program in Nairobi and was just such an incredible ally, um, both both supporting but also poking us, right, uh, as he should, uh, to be more ambitious. Um, he then went on to be uh, the director of the Oxford Martin School in uh, in Britain, and um, and now he heads up the largest uh, section of the UN, which is the United Nations Development Program, and and as well he should, I should say, because even when he was heading up the Environment Program, he was always very aware and very um, determined to to bring together the environmental issues with the development issues. He never let, you know, the light of day go between those two things. He always, always understood that they go hand in hand. And so um, Achim, uh, I, I was delighted when he was named to UNDP. I'm not sure that he's so delighted about living in New York as opposed to Nairobi where he was totally thrilled. Um, but... Um, but he has been a great friend, a great ally, and and honestly, a great hero of both of these, or rather of this one single issue, because it is one single issue: development and our um, and and our um, environmental context in which development takes place. So, what a delight to have him on the podcast! Um, and uh, let's listen, and then we'll have a few words after. What a pleasure uh, and what a delight to have you on Outrage and Optimism. We have frankly been pursuing you for a while to get you on this podcast. And so we're delighted that it's um, finally happened. And as I see you here on the screen, Ahim, I have to say, I'm having a little bit of a deja vu, but on the other hand, a little bit of a contrast experience, both at the same time. Because while I was at the um, United Nations Framework Convention for Climate Change, you headed up the UN Environment Program. Program, and hence, we obviously worked very closely with each other and got to be very good friends. Since then, I have left the UN, you left the Environment Program, but you jumped over to the largest, largest section of, of the UN, which is the United Nations Development Program. And that's what you're heading up now. And I just, 
just as a teaser, Achim, I'm wondering, is Achim a different person today than the person that um, I used to work with three, four, five years ago? Who, who would I encounter today as different to the person that I worked so closely with a few years ago? Well, Christiana, it's um, first of all great to connect through outrage and optimism again. And I think your first question is perhaps one that I should pass on to my non-existent therapist because <laughs> living in New York for three years now, um, you know, New Yorkers love their, their therapists and psychoanalysis. But I think the easiest way to answer is, I think in some ways I am even more conscious of the unique moment in which we are living. But the very reason why the Secretary General asked me to lead and head the United Nations Development Program is rooted in my journey in life, but also my, I think, longstanding conviction that in addressing the great challenge of the 21st century, the environmental Achilles heel of our economies, of our development path, is something that goes well beyond the science of environmental change. It goes well beyond the kind of critique of the ignorance and sometimes stupidity that have defined decades of actions despite knowing that we should do things differently and trying to connect the environmental agenda to people's livelihoods, human well-being. And I think in some ways I began my working life as a development economist. And um, as Kristalina, our colleague, once said to me, um, uh, a few years ago when I was appointed to UNDP, maybe this is a circle sort of uh, closing full circle in finding myself back in the center of the UN's development program and development system. Mm. Do, do you feel, I'm, I'm going to use an adjective here, do you feel more complete? I don't think I, I would use that that adjective necessarily because in the everyday work that, that you know, I... Um, witness and, and confront, there is um, a lack of completeness. So I think it would, um, from a personal point of view, I feel very much in the right place because I have always been uh, somebody who has believed very much in this extraordinary moment in 1945 when the world on the ashes of the Second World War had the vision but also the courage to put a United Nations idea into place. I never thought I would actually be an employee of the United Nations. Um, that happens somewhere along the way during Kofi Annan's tenure. But I think I do sense a world that is beginning to put the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle together, the great risks of the mm. 21st century and the ability to, to work in a different way. And that is my daily motivation to you know, use my role in the United Nations to give expression to that. So embedded in a far larger family of people who are changing the world right now. I love that. And and let me take you, we will get into a discussion about multilateralism, Achim, because it does seem that we're in a very different global mood on multilateralism than when you and I worked together. So we, we will get into that a little bit later on the episode. But just before that, um, I wanted to bring our attention to a fascinating report that UNDP has recently published uh, introducing the concept of temporary basic income. Fascinating because there has been a lot of conversation and much, let's say, academic research about the um, strengths and the dangers of a universal basic income. And you've just put out 
uh, a fascinating report saying that it would cost somewhere uh, around $200 billion per month to provide guaranteed basic income to 2.7 billion people. That, And I'm assuming that this report is a direct reaction to COVID and to the economic paralysis that the world is in, as, which has so deeply affected those in the informal sector. Um, I, I think it's a very... Um, provocative and courageous report that you're putting this out, it would be a first step toward a universal basic income, but would love to hear the background of conceptualizing a temporary basic income. Is it really the reaction to COVID or is it something else that is behind that? Would just love to, to hear you explain the background of this. It is absolutely something that has come directly from the front lines of the battle to, first of all, manage the COVID-19 crisis from a containment strategy, the health crisis, so to speak. But immediately, and this is one of the great strengths that I appreciated since arriving in UNDP, that it is working, you know, at the coal phase, so to speak, of development. Its presence in 170 countries, the Secretary General's request that we provide the technical lead in the UN development system for the socioeconomic response has led us to engage with well over 100 countries already in the assessments and in recovery strategies. And the conclusion that we needed to step up in front of the world and say, look, what we're seeing on the ground is extremely important, both from a containment strategy, while we don't have a vaccine, we don't have a treatment for COVID-19, but also by being a witness to the extraordinary economic freefall and social disruption that COVID has caused. And I think two or three things here are very, very significant. One, we did not want to um, take this debate into the paradigmatic or religious sphere of universal basic income or not. What we tried to make is the analogy that actually in many more developed economies, wealthier economies, temporary basic income is an integral part of a social security, social safety net system. You know, when you send people on furlough, as in Germany, and you pay them essentially, even though they're not working, unemployment benefits, social security insurance, those are precisely temporary basic incomes. And in wealthier economies or more developed um, social security systems, that is the tool we practice every day. In developing countries, often it is 90% or more who work in the informal sector. You should lock down you essentially have no income, you have no unemployment benefit, you are literally looking at using up your meager savings, which might be sometimes just two or three days income, and then having nothing. So both from a point of view of being able to cope and help particularly developing countries focus on how to manage the pandemic at this moment, but secondly, to recognize you cannot ask people who cannot afford to buy food for themselves to stay in lockdown mode. And thirdly, we wanted to make the link also to a global responsibility to just like we do in each of our countries in the you know, European or North American context or Japan right now, stimulus packages, stabilization packages are meant to help the most vulnerable to ensure that people don't fall through the cracks. That same analogy applies at a global level between richer nations and poorer nations. And that's why we made the link to debt repayments. You see, what we estimate is that this year, about 3.1 trillion or a little bit more of debt repayments are scheduled from developing countries to debtors. Just a third of that could essentially finance such a program. And so the figure of 199 billion sounds prohibitive, but actually 
very quickly you break it down. Countries have their own public budgets. They could um, defer debt repayments. They could look at repurposing money from defense budgets. They could also look at the macroeconomic impact of injecting money into millions of households who actually stimulate the economy. So indirect and direct tax income could partly pay for it. This is affordable. That was our main message. Secondly, it is urgently needed. And thirdly, it requires both national and international cooperation. And yes, it took courage to put this report out. We were concerned. I was concerned. But the, the power of the argument and the reality being dictated by what we see on the ground in countries right now led us to take the step forward. And surprisingly, perhaps, the response has been remarkably positive because virtually every country is already engaged in some form of cash transfer program right now. So let's do this by design rather than by default and hopefully get through this crisis in a much more resilient way. Hmm. It's it's a, a wonderfully innovative uh, way of approaching uh, economics. You work at a major United uh, Nations institution, and yet you have said we live in economically determined times. And you've described the the era of trickle down economics as, as as over. I mean, when you think about global responsibility, uh, you you've also spoken very eloquently about separate economic systems, the, the the state versus the private sector, and you know one wonders if there will be a united corporations or a united investors one day. Can I ask you what practical examples you see of of where the, the this this the separatism has come together? Are there examples in the digital space or with regard to the SDGs? What's catching your eye and what's exciting you? Look, first of all, it's a basic fact in looking at our economies and, and the macroeconomic perspective. I mean, you know, public finance, the budget of governments, accounts for roughly a fifth of economic activity in our economies taken globally. So by implication, four-fifths is happening in the markets, in the private sector universe. And, you know, one of the things that we need to get over also is that we always define the private sector as some kind of multinational corporation. Over 90% in many countries, even 95%, such as Japan, of businesses are small, medium-scale enterprises, the backbone of the economic activity, yeah. of the services industry, of the livelihoods and employment, is not the mega-corporation. It is, in fact, the small, medium-scale enterprises that people in their innovations, in their survival strategies, are putting in place. And that is why I have always argued that if you are looking at development, sustainable development, how could you pursue such a path without explicitly thinking about that part of the economy, which is the dominant part in which private sector actors are drivers? Now, you mentioned a couple of examples, and I just want to echo um, in, a, in a strong way the potential. Take digital. Digital is an extraordinary opportunity. It is technology-led in one sense. It is also entrepreneurially and startup-led in terms of then creating platforms and services and has very quickly also shown that you cannot simply be led by technology. Otherwise, in a few years' time, we are going to be run worldwide by maybe five or ten corporations. So as we mm. have done in the past, regulatory and policy frameworks are part of shaping an ecosystem in which the brilliance of technology and entrepreneurship drive possibility, but we also address the fact that we cannot leave the majority of the population behind. We cannot let algorithms simply define women uh, poorer people out of the financial system, to give two examples. And therefore, there is tremendous opportunity. And inclusive finance has, particularly in developing countries, broken through entirely new frontiers in bringing people who didn't exist in the financial system because they didn't have an address, they didn't have collateral. They are suddenly trading, borrowing instantly in the morning to buy their goods, sell them in the market, repaying loans in the evening. This is a revolution unfolding. 
At the same time, take something like health insurance. In the midst of this pandemic, the tragedy is that it has once again revealed the deep structural inequalities. There are some people in some countries who are insured. They can weather this storm in a relatively resilient way. For most poor people, there is no health insurance. There is no national health mm -hmm. service. And therefore, the ability to, for example, work with the insurance sector, look at the algorithms and the service products that they have developed, the risk management tools, and put in place a micro-health insurance program where government perhaps can use its limited resources to buy down some of the costs, but then allow insurance companies to offer these schemes in order to bring hundreds of millions of people mm. into basic insurance is another good example of this frontier. And I think investment, the third sector is investment. And we live in the richest moment in monetary terms in human history. This planet, this mm. global population has more money at its disposal right now than we have ever been able to count. And yet wherever you look, we have transformational challenges and there is not enough investment capital. So the finance sector, the financial markets have to become part of an SDG-driven investment agenda. And again, I think UNDP yeah. can work with governments and the private sector to enlarge that space, as are many others. Great. Mm. Do you want to ask another one, Paul, or should I, I dive into... Say, I was just going yeah, to say that's, a, that's an absolutely captivating vision, and, and I hope and believe that your kind of um, uh, encouragement of leadership in, in the private sector will body forth those, those entrepreneurs that take these new opportunities that aren't just about maximizing money, but taking society in the right direction. In their own words, that is the, you know, the paradigm shift that many leaders in the private sector are realizing out yeah. of a personal conviction, I think, in the first instance, but also the sheer corporate rationale. I mean, we, we are at a point in time where transparency information availability is increasingly going to challenge companies that are simply adding to our problems. And I think the renewable energy, clean energy revolution has been a great example. That technology has been in drawers for the last 50 to 80 years. But it was with public policy, <laughs> sure. public awareness that you yeah. saw this transformation then happening. Yeah. I can, can I ask you, you said earlier on, um, you know, that you've always been someone who believed in these principles of the United Nations and this institution that was born out of such, you know, such awful um, goings on in the middle of the previous century. And I just want to ask you a question about the health of both that institution and also of the principles of cooperation that it espouses. I mean, Several years ago, when, when Christiana and I were at the UNFCCC, you were at UNEP, and we were all working towards the Paris Agreement, it felt like this very difficult moment. But looking back now, it sort of looks like days of halcyon innocence compared to sort of what you're facing now. <laughs> and, you know, even before the pandemic, we were at a point where we were facing protectionism, attacks on multilateral institutions, trade wars, nationalism, and this sort of general pulling back from cooperation. And now, of course, with the, with the pandemic, we're seeing projections of massive drops in international trade, even development financing. And we have this rhetoric that is now sort of from some countries kind of going off the scale. I mean, just this week, Nikki Haley, the former ambassador to the UN, said at the Republican National Convention, the UN is not for the faint of heart. It's a place where dictators, murderers, and thieves denounce America, then put their hands out and demand their bills to be paid. So, you know, when we're at that point of the rhetoric, it's, it's, it's challenging, right, to look at the necessary steps that need to be taken by these institutions. So I have a couple of questions about what we do about that. But first, I'd just like to know, you know, as much as anyone, you are sitting in the heart of these co collaborative 
networks and institutions responsible for helping the world meet the sustainable development goals. What does it feel like inside those institutions? Do you feel like the winds of cooperation kind of are there and there still is energy and momentum for that? Or does it feel like you're sort of besieged by these forces that are pushing in another direction? Well, I think both observations are true. I mean, this is perhaps the schizophrenic reality of working in the center of an institution that is essentially founded not on some naive idealism that nations are united. I often say we have a United Nations precisely because nations mm. are not united. They have competing interests. They have conflicts with one another. They have different legacies. And the brilliance of the idea, the vision of establishing the United Nations is in my mind so important at this moment in time for a couple of reasons. One, let us remember, this is the 75th anniversary of establishing the United Nations. It's associated with the year 1945 after the war. Hmm. I think what is actually more interesting is that the idea was first born in 1941. Hmm. And then through conferences, you know, out of the United States, through conferences in uh, London, in Moscow, in Tehran, was matured at the darkest moment of the 20th century. And I think this is so important. In mm -hmm. the difficult times, it is vision and it is courage mm. to look at something better that defines possibility, not the um, you know, negative skepticism or armchair commentary that we so often hear. And it's a time to lean forward in the midst of this pandemic. And yes, the UN is as an institution, as a political platform contested. But let me remind you, this is not new. We've lived through a Cold yeah. War. Uh, we've had, you know, U.S. Um, administrations wanting to see the U.N. pack up and go down the East River and, and move somewhere else in the past. <laughs> I think we should not, you know, confuse the temporary political dynamics in the U.S., which I think, you know, points to a far larger set of polarizations within the United States rather than the United Nations. Having said that, there is no question that member states lack a degree of respect at the moment for what they have established in terms of international law, in terms of normative and progressive rulemaking that the UN has so often facilitated. But do I have any doubt that there is, you know, anything better out there? No, there isn't. Yeah. In fact, you know, just the debate over the pandemic and the WHO, I've often asked the question, so would you rather have a global pandemic response being um, defined and led by Washington or Beijing, or do you want to have that place? where every nation comes together. And this yeah. powerful idea, if you're small or you're large, you have a seat in the United Nations, you have the right to be heard, and this is a rules-based and rights-based institution. And here it is 75 years after it was founded. Yes, it has bruises and it needs to evolve, but that evolution has to be driven by member states. It's mm. a lack of respect for the idea and a lack of engagement for evolving the United Nations that I think is very much giving that impression that maybe it is not performing. And clearly, as a bureaucracy, as an administration, as organizations, we are the first ones to say, look, this is a different time. This is a different era. We have to change from within as well. Yeah. But the license to operate comes from member states. That, I mean, that, that sort of stubborn, determined optimism gets very high marks around here, I have to say, particularly <laughs> with Christiana. Um, can, can, I would just, so just one other question to that, sort of looking at the political winds around the world. I mean, do you think it's true that we have not done as good a job as we should have done of conveying to individual citizens around the world the benefits of multilateralism today and tomorrow and that we need to accept that appealing to public goods and the welfare of future generations 
is likely to be insufficient in times of real hardship, but we need to find a new narrative that helps individuals understand the benefits of multilateralism. How, how do we do that? And how? Because really what we need is citizens, yes, member states, but we also need citizens around the world to understand that they want their leaders to work together and cooperate and collaborate. Well, this is the odd thing. If you look at public opinion polls of citizens, they are far ahead of their leaders. So this hmm. is one of the strange phenomena. Right. The United Nations is still recognized as one of the most trusted and admired brands in the world. And this is not UN commissioned public opinion surveys. Yeah. And in part, it is because people project onto the idea of the United Nations, onto that sacred hall, as Secretary General Ban Ki-moon once called the General Assembly Hall, onto the voice and the pulpit of the Secretary General all that which they believe is righteous and is good, and yet realize fully well that it is not a power in the hard sense. I mean, the Secretary General's power is to speak truth to the world. And I think, let me begin by saying our citizens are being misled, hmm. and our citizens are obviously also facing many crises in their immediate surroundings. How do we address that? Not by preaching to them. I think you're absolutely right. We have to explain in a contemporary way what is the value of having this unique place that essentially says, why don't you rather talk with each other than point guns at each other? That's yeah. the fundamental peace and security mandate. Secondly, isn't it a good thing that we have a humanitarian response system that in the earthquakes, the pandemics, the floods, and all the disasters that affect you know, literally hundreds of millions of people a year, the international community has a rapid response mechanism. We are literally through the World Food Program right now ensuring with other UN agencies also that 100 million people this evening have something to eat because fate or however you want to describe it, disaster has left them with virtually no protection. And then there is the development promise. People often say development hasn't worked, development has failed. How many people realize that, you know, we were only two, 250 years ago, 1 billion people on this planet. It took us 50,000 years to get to 1 billion, and now we are 7.5 billion people. Yeah. In that period, we have, you know, almost eliminated illiteracy. We have increased since 1960 life expectancy by 16 years. We have almost universal education. And people live longer, they have more possibilities, and we have also significantly reduced extreme poverty. I'm sorry, I don't want to come with too many numbers, but one more that I think is an important illustration. 300 years ago, nine out of 10 people on this planet lived in extreme poverty. Today, with a sevenfold increase in the total global population, roughly one out of 10 people lives in extreme poverty. Mm. That's the story of development, and it in no way yeah. excuses the fact that that one out of 10 is still with us because it is absolutely unnecessary yeah. given the means we have. But that's the development mandate of our generation to finally eradicate extreme poverty, address injustice and inequality, and allow sustainable development to drive the future of our economic, but also prosperity and social well-being. Fantastic. Thank you. So, Achim, thank you very much for that overview of the progress that humankind has really achieved. Um, and standing on that very firm basis, I would love to invite you to now look forward. Uh, we, we usually wrap up this conversation by asking people, are you more outraged? Are you more optimistic about the future? Because we think we need both. And you're welcome to answer that. But I would love if you could to answer that in the context of having spent so much time at the UN with this global view, 
um, and with all the different hats that you've worn. Where, what are you really excited about in the next two, three years? What do you think is on the horizon that despite everything, you know, that we read in the media, we also know that there are many positive things happening. What are you excited about that you know is going to come about in the next two to three years that makes you jump out of bed in the morning and go, yeah, we're going to get there? Well, I think you need a mixture of outrage and optimism. I think many would say that. But I think in my own outlook on life, optimism always prevails because human nature is not one of self-destruction. And I think therein lies the element of outrage that one has to acknowledge that, you know, for 30 years now, we have been dealing with a challenge such as climate change. We lack the imagination to comprehend why this is such a unique moment in human and planetary history. But then if you look at it in broader historical terms, we're in the midst of transforming our entire global economy from a high carbon intense um, foundation of the last 250 years to a low carbon clean energy economy. I think what I see and what makes me optimistic is that I think energy transitions will happen much faster. But herein lies my second reason for optimism. It will also help us address one of those underlying conditions that the pandemic has revealed so brutally. We need to learn inequality. that in addressing inequality, climate change is not a sectoral issue. It is a scientific phenomenon. We have defined it through carbon emissions and greenhouse gases into a set of actions. But, you know, wherever you look in our daily lives, if we can connect the positive action on climate change, which is a generational uh, undertaking, with the benefits of access to clean energy, 600 million citizens on the African continent right now do not have access to electricity. This is the year 2020. Why am I optimistic? Because I think despite all the darkness in the immediacy of managing this crisis, and it is a very dark moment, I actually believe that we might see a more realistic ambition in meeting the Paris Agreement targets and goals coming out of this pandemic. And we may actually mm -hmm. see mm. the willingness to invest in ways we would not have seen uh, perhaps uh, 12 months ago in connecting people to off-grid, on-grid clean energy, driving development on a continent that otherwise will despair because it has no opportunity to develop, and thereby show also the you know, many, many benefits of working not just on a climate problem, but taking climate seriously as the immediate challenge, but embedding it into a transition towards a green economy and making the SDGs the DNA, so to speak, also of climate action. And I think vice versa. This yes. is the moment in time. Right. Well, um, you you couldn't have uh, voiced it more eloquently, uh, Achim. Thank you very much. And you know what? You've just reminded me why I so much enjoyed working hand in hand with you. <laughs> so thank you very, very much. Thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you for um, sharing your, your thinking, your frustrations, your joys with us. And all the best for your continued work at UNDP. Thank you to all of you. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you for having this series of podcasts. Great idea and love listening to it. And, you know, in terms of what I can do, I learned very well from Christiana. So um, let's keep going on that path. There are many people out there <laughs> who are very keen to listen. Thanks, Akim. Bye-bye. Thank Bye. you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I mean, how good to talk to Akim Steiner. And I've got to say, I mean, you know, I, I observed him fairly closely uh, in the lead up to Paris. And, and I, I was kind of shocked in those days 
the degree of competition that exists inside the UN system. Um, but Akin was always a remarkably collaborative player and he was always focused on the outcome. And in that system that actually didn't always bring the best out of people, he was just at such a bright spot. So how amazing to get the chance to talk to him and see that he's still delivering that work. Paul, uh, what did you leave that conversation? Wait, with? wait, before before I cede to Paul, um, because you <laughs> remark on um, Achim's collaborative spirit, not I, the new term collaboration would never occur to me with uh, with Achim, right? Yeah, absolute collaboration the whole time through, in the thick of it, in through difficult days, through good days. Yeah. Achim is just such a trusted colleague, such a good friend. I mean, not a person, also a personal friend, but such a friend of environmental and development issues. And he's just so, you know, so open, so inclusive in his um, in his work and in his leadership. So collaboration does not apply to him, just so that we set that one straight. And just to double down on that, I mean, even, you know, there were they, you know, there were months in there where you were you were kind of like, you know the center of the stage and there were others that i won't name and i'm sure you won't who were very jealous of that and were trying to kind of muscle in on it but akim just did whatever he could for the outcome yeah there was never any question i mean just in terms of the quality of the man it was amazing yeah um, Paul, sorry, we we jumped in in front of you. Go for it. Look, what a lovely, lovely human is all I can say. And um, you know, he speaks with such passion about about justice. Uh, uh, first of all, he spoke so articulately about like how we have developed so well, but there's still a billion people in in, in kind of you know experiencing chronic poverty instead of yeah. it's ten percent of us instead of ninety percent of us. But it's it's you know. He sees, but tremendous sort of the justice of 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 relatively modest wealth distribution. But his core, the urgency of that. But I was also very struck about him talking about public finance being only a fifth of global economies. That's very interesting. If you think about it, if public finance is only a fifth, then kind of the direction of our economies is the direction of our societies, right? So I, I just think that he's he's very astute on 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 uh, understanding that uh, that that dimension and how how you know achieving the sustainable development goals uh, and helping those billion people who suffer the worst, you know, is is going to take all parts of us. We can't just rely on the kind of the the the, the the, the state to fix it all. And the other thing I just noticed is, is he talked about a certain lack of respect for the UN. Um, and, you know, I used to privately be very cross with John Bolton because he used to be the US ambassador to the UN and I'd heard him be very disrespectful. Now it turns out he's kind of one of my heroes for going against uh, certain politicians that I'm not very fond of. But uh, I do think that respect for the UN system is something that will actually emerge from the great work of people like Eckham Stein. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I, I was also wondering, although we didn't know about this Chinese announcement when we spoke to Aachen, but in, in my head, I'm bringing them together because um, if, if there is evidence of the fact that some political leaders understand that relationship between um, the environment, which allows us to live, breathe, and eat, because without that, we wouldn't. Um, it, China, Chinese leadership has really understood that they 
cannot continue to develop, especially if they want to bring the rest of their population that is still under the line of poverty. And they've done a great job over the past 10 years to bring that many people out of poverty. But if they want to continue that path, they have totally understood that they have to go hand in hand with protection of uh, of their of their national domestic environment, but above all the global environment because it affects them uh, in a disproportionate manner. And so I'm I'm delighted to have had that conversation with uh, with Achim and then see President Xi Jinping basically you know pick up that message and go forward with a very, very clear political interpretation yeah. of that message that goes beyond um, be, beyond literature and beyond academic research into here is what we're doing. Um, and clearly out of no altruistic reasons, this is because he knows that that is the only way forward for the economic development of China especially bringing people out of poverty, uh, is to do as he has announced. It's, it's so interesting you, you reflect on that and the implication of that, 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 that China announcement. I mean, two things. One is, listening to Akim, I just wept for the power of a public servant who can speak effectively about the need for multilateralism and how that defends our common interests. I mean, we are just so short of people who can genuinely lead, who can talk about the benefits. I mean, he's so compelling. He's so convincing. And I mean, you know, the UK is a disaster. The US is a disaster. I mean, Macron is pretty good about talking about multilateralism. Merkel, of course. But then also, of course, I mean, it just embodies the transition. I noticed this week that Joanna Lewis, a professor from Georgetown, uh, was quoted in the New York Times, and she was talking about Trump versus Xi Jinping's speech. And she said, while Trump's speech blames China for the world's problems, Xi's speech calls for global response and highlights China's contributions. Hmm. So we're at a situation now where multilateralism and the benefits of collaboration are being espoused by China and denied by the United States. And, you know, I mean, for people like me, and I I suspect like all of us, who would say that the overall net-net, the US contribution to global harmony over the last 50 years has generally actually been pretty good, it's kind of heartbreaking to see the US cede that position through such negligence when actually it's so defendable. You know, we can have leadership there that talks about the benefits of multilateralism, as explained by Akim, that really lead us towards a better future. And this is so avoidable, and the US is just sleepwalking into it. Well, I mean, there is one other thing that was a terrible thing that happened this week, which was the loss of the Supreme Court Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And she said that the um, greatest threat to freedom is an inert people. And I think that one of the tragedies of of, of the the great uh, broker of, of peace, you know, home of the United Nations, uh, the United States, you know, uh, uh, over the over recent times is... Um, it has kind of um, through uh, distraction uh, and, and perhaps a certain sense of irresponsibility amongst some people who, who are in very powerful positions allowed the people to become somewhat inert. And this great gift of a sort of uh, a, a global order has, has to some extent been, been lost. Uh, but nature abhors a vacuum and uh, the government of China, notwithstanding all the comments you made, uh, Christiana, that uh, question uh, that uh, 
organization is coming forward with leadership and other leadership will, will, will come and, and follow. But the one thing I think we all know and all the listeners know is that we can read a graph. Climate change is happening. This is a fact. Those businesses that decarbonize, those investors, those organizations will lead. And, you know, it may be that Trump digs coal, but this is all going in one direction and we have to get the right result in November. You know, I think, Paul, if you ran for political office, just the phrase, we can read a graph, would just land so well with the election. Oh, yeah. For years. Yeah, I've worked right. in climate change for 20 years. And people, <laughs> journalists say, why'd you get into climate change? I say, I can read a graph. I want a hat that says, I can read a graph. It just, yeah, Make America read graphs again. <laughs> All right, friends, this has been a lot of fun. There's some outrage and optimism merch coming your way with Dickinson, a picture of Paul's face and I can read a graph in it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, now, of course, we're going to bring you some music, as we always do at the end of this episode. Um, and this week, we have a great piece of music for you from She Drew the Gun. Now, as ever, we wrote to the artist and asked for responses to a couple of questions. So this piece of music is actually a reworked cover of Frank Zappa song, and she thought it'd be interesting to take this song from 50 years ago and use it to say that the mainstream media still isn't serving us. And she's actually also very thoughtful about the role of artists during a climate emergency, which she says that some art is a means of escape from the harsh truth of what is happening to the world around us. And that's OK. But also it's the artist's duty to reflect the times and that she herself likes to use prose to pick holes in the status quo, use good music, but also ask the listener a question and delve into a big issue to really listen to the lyrics and really understand things on a different perspective. It's all connected and you can't tackle climate change without tackling other issues like capitalism. It's not that all of her songs are political, but there is often an undercurrent. And she always feels she's chipping away at the assumptions that exist within our society and to try to challenge them to move us further forward. So this is She Drew the Gun. The song is called Trouble Every Day. Well, I'm about to get upset from watching my TV. Checking out the news until my eyeballs fail to see I mean to say that every day is just another rotten mess When's it gonna change, my friend, is anybody's guess So I'm watching and I'm waiting, hoping for the best Think I'll even go to praying every time I hear them saying that There's nowhere to delay that trouble coming every day Nowhere to delay that trouble coming every day They watch the riots and the busies on the street I watch them throwing rocks and stuff and choking in the heat I listen to reports about the whiskey passing round Seeing the smoke and fire in the market burning down Watch while everybody in the street would take a turn To stomp and smash and crash and bash and slash and bust and burn And I'm watching and I'm waiting, hoping for the best Think I'll even go to praying every time I hear them saying that There's nowhere to Sold them a sound 
cars in London just to stick it to the man Cause we gotta go cold turkey, gotta give up all that gas Addicted to the fossil fuels but they ain't gonna last And the scene is getting hotter like the scientists foretell And them cats up in the boardroom should be going straight to hell The corporate institutions, the whole bloody cartel Except the Holy Church of England has still got them shares in Shell And they're cutting all the funding cause they're stripping back the state Privatised policing, advertising hate And they're selling us a ticket to something that don't exist And their cup that overflows is just filled up with hypocrites So I'm watching and I'm waiting, I'm hoping for the best Think I'll even go to praying every time I hear them saying that there's no Hi everyone, this is Nolan, covering for Clay while he's on a much-deserved holiday. So there you go, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. The song you just heard is Trouble Every Day by She Drew the Gun. You can check out more of their music by clicking the link in the show notes. Outrage and Optimism is a global optimism production and is produced this week by me, Nolan Rossi. Our executive producer is Marina Mancila Herman. Thanks to the entire Global Optimism team, which includes Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Laura Richardson, Sophie McDonald, Freya Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sharon Johnson, and John Ward. Our hosts are Tom Rivet-Karnak, Christiana Figueres, and Paul Dickinson. And of course, thank you to our guest this week, Akim Steiner. You can find us online at Global Optimism on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It helps us so much if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Five stars and a note. We read every single review. Next week, another great episode, so subscribe, and we'll see you then. Thank you.